This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Do you dream of writing a novel, or do you just like listening to authors talk? I'm Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading, Stories Behind the Story podcast. This new podcast springs from many requests we've had from listeners to do more episodes on how to write. We've produced a six-part series where we discuss the craft of writing with some of Australia's top authors and industry professionals. Welcome to Better Reading on Writing. I never used to um, plot my books. I used to just wing it um, and I felt sort of free and easy doing that. But when I started working with James Patterson, he likes these big extensive outlines. And I learned that that's really good because... It's comforting, you know, you've seen it, you've done it on the paper, people have looked at it and said, yes, this is going to be a great novel and you can just go through, you know, chapter by chapter and just follow the roadmap really. And also once you've plotted it for yourself, that's your first idea down, you know, and you can look at it and go, well, can I do better than that? You know, and, and while you're following that roadmap, you might go, oh, that looks interesting, that little road, side road, let's, let's go off, and then we've got somewhere safe to come back to. We just heard from best-selling crime author Candace Fox, who also co-writes with James Patterson. Two very different approaches to plotting books. Today we're going to discuss plot, how important structure is in your novel, and whether your completely original idea might not be original at all. And with us and to help us is Dovla McTiernan. Dovla, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. It's always um, lovely to be here. I am super excited that you're here today to discuss plot because I think you're one of the most considered writers oh. I know and you are very good at communicating that. Oh, wow. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that Feeling because we've recorded chuffed. podcasts before. <laughs> okay, so Tim Winton told me he doesn't know what is what a book is about until he writes it. Okay. John Irving once said, plot is a map and I begin with it. Two very different styles of writing. Mm -hmm. So what do you do, Dervla? Are you a plotter or a pantser? Well, a plotter is someone who outlines in advance, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. They know where they're going with the story and they're writing to a pre conceived plan. Mm -hmm. Whereas a pantser is someone who literally flies by the seat of their pants. They don't know where they're going. They start with a blank page and an idea and they write their way into the story. And I always think it's like a spectrum, you know, and I really doubt there's anybody at the very far reaches of either spectrum. I mean, I know Lee Child says he starts with a blank page and he writes and he says that he would be bored if he wrote any other way, if he knew his endings in advance. But I would imagine he sees it at least a little bit of the way in advance. Or maybe he has an idea about even his main character. I'm sure he's a fair idea about what he's going to do as Reacher. 
So I think people sit somewhere on that spectrum and maybe even move back and forth. I definitely feel I've moved on it. I wrote the ruin with an idea and a blank page and no clue where I was going. And I definitely paid the price for that in the writing. And I wrote the scholar with a pretty good outline and a fair idea about where I was going and then and thought I would always write like that. And why did you change your style? Two things. I found in writing The Ruin, I was going around the houses. I would write 200, you know, I think I wrote about 250,000 words in that book to get the 100,000 word novel I ended up with because I went down a lot of blind alleys that didn't lead me anywhere. So that was the first realisation. I wanted to avoid that. And I think the second realisation was that I learned that writing an, uh, an outline does not mean that the story becomes inorganic. It doesn't. An outline is as creative as writing the words on the page. You know, you're still building and creating worlds and characters. And it also doesn't have to be static. I mean, I wrote an outline for The Scholar and it was detailed, but I also abandoned it and rewrote it two or three times in the writing of the book because at certain points the characters tell you this is not the road they want to go down anymore. They've They've grown or changed, morphed since the char- since you first created them. Now they're different people and the story needs to go a different direction. So I think for me as a writer, if I stay open to that and open to hearing that, open to binning the, the outline when it no longer becomes useful, then I'm a fan of outlining. But yeah. not if you write it in advance and you try to stick to it like glue. I don't think that works. I really like the way you describe that your characters actually lead you in a direction. Talk to me more about that. Well, for me, I I used to, when I heard writers talk about characters coming to life, I I didn't understand it. You know, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, And now I think I do. I start writing a book by writing about a character. I have a particular kind of notebook I like and I take it out and I write for pages and pages and pages about that character, their entire history and background, you know, down to their siblings and their first boyfriend, whatever until they start to come to life, until I feel like I almost know them as a person. If I can do that for my characters and place them on the page, they almost tell the story for me because I just then have to put them in a situation and it takes off. If I haven't done that prep work, then I'm sitting with, you know, wooden characters or one-dimensional characters on the page and I'm telling them what to do. I'm saying, well, I need Sally to get from this location to that location by chapter two so that this event can happen there. And I don't know the hows or the whys because I don't know her. And if I don't know her, then it's not organic. If I do know her, then I know, well, what would she do in that situation when Tom says that to her? I know Sally's going to go off because she is just like that. That's, you know, she always overreacts. Look at what she did, you know, back and whenever. And then I, and then the story can grow organically and surprise me sometimes because I think, wow, yes. So of course Sally I, might surprise you. Sally might surprise me. Sally goes off and then, of course, Tom's going to react like that. I never thought of that. That would be great, you know, and then the ideas start to come and flow. So do you profile, do you do a profile on every single character? Every significant character, yeah. And yeah. it will be pages and pages, yeah. Yeah, wow. And do you sometimes write a profile and at the end of it think, oh, well, I don't like that. I don't yeah. like that person. Yeah, I will sometimes. Or I, I just say there's nothing exciting coming from this person. You know, there's nothing. Usually I start and, and I'll be start. you know, it'll literally start out with something as simple as Sally's 40. She's got two children. She's got blonde hair. She's five foot two, whatever. And it starts to become more and more detailed by the end of the page. And then exciting things start to come out of it. If nothing fun and exciting is coming out of that character by the end of the page, then I'm probably on the wrong track and I need to abandon her and move on with somebody else. Mm. Um, So, yeah, you're looking for those moments that make you even almost sort of feeling like a reader get excited. You know, Mm. what would I want to read about? What would be fun? 
You told me that you have the story completely in your head. Is that right? Mostly, yeah. Mostly. So you are dreaming or daydreaming of it for a very long time. Yes. Or plotting it in your head. What do you call that? Is there a technical term? I think daydreaming is a good one. I think daydreaming works for me. That is exactly what it's like. You, you know, know, Michael Robotham, um, who we all know and love, he once told me that he's he was writing some one of his books and one of the female characters and um, his wife said to him over coffee or dinner or lunch one day, are you with her at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> that makes complete sense. Yeah. I absolutely get that. Are you with her or are you yeah, with me? Yeah, where are you right now? What planet, what, what world are you living in? It feels that way sometimes and you're building something creating something in your head you pour a lot of yourself into it you know and then it becomes you get to a certain point where it's the only place you want to be yeah tell me about the technique of that so it is really I gather very important that you don't sit down and write all of the time then isn't it yeah you need time away I mean look I try and write every day because I find if I don't it's you know the story starts to slow down but at the same time I'm very conscious that in the first couple of years, all I did was was write and work, write and work, write and work. And then I realized that you just get burned out and you don't fill up the well again. You know, you need to see what other people are doing. You need to write, read great books, watch great TV and movies, spend time with family and friends, laugh, you know, mm. just feel alive again. Because every, you're building something from nothing. You're creating a story from thin air. If you don't have anything to put into that, then what can you expect to create, you know? Mm. So you have to live a life as well. Mm. Does practice help? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk to Absolutely. me about practice. Well, I think a lot of people who want to write, and most people who want to write are readers, so they know good books. And they sit down and they start writing and they look at the words in the page and they think, oh, God, it's not me. I can't do it because look at this rubbish I've just written, you know. Mm. But the reality is writing is like everything else. It's a skill. I can't, I can't say that everybody can write good fiction, but a lot of potentially good writers abandon it very quickly because they look at what they've done and they judge it. I think you have to recognise that it takes practice and there are certain skills that can be taught. So for me, I, if you want to write, I would say read the best of the craft books you can get your hands on. Take from them what is helpful to you because I don't believe there is one right way. So if you read all of these craft books, you take from that what's useful and leave the rest behind you. And then write as often as you can for a a prolonged period of time, at least a year, if not two, and see what happens with your writing. Because I guarantee you, you'll be a completely different writer at the end of the two years that you were from the beginning. Mm. Do you think it's plot what keeps a reader turning the page? I think it's character that keeps the reader turning the page, but I think plot has to be there at the same time. For 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 the kind of fiction I'm writing, certainly, you know, you can you you could have a fascinating character study, but if she doesn't do anything for two hundred pages, you know, you're not going to keep your reader. Yeah, and you think about that. Yeah, I do. I think about it at every level. I think about it story level, paragraph level, even chapter level. You know, um, I feel like. Character first and always, but plot is part of it too. Or rather story, I suppose. I see story as, as it's, I know it's, it's the same thing, but it's slightly different in my head. So what kind of tools do you use? I mean, I, I, I hear people talking of um, 
of computer programs mm-hmm. that help mm-hmm. with with writing and plots. What do you yeah. use? I use a combination of my simple notebook, um, Scrivener, which is the, the probably the software most writers use. And do you recommend that? Yeah, I really recommend Scrivener. I mean, it's very simple. First of all, it's not it's not outrageously overpriced as a lot of these systems are. You don't have to pay a monthly subscription. It's a one-off fee and then yeah. you've got this solid piece of software that works. Yeah. And it's what it delivers for me, like there are loads of bells and whistles, but for me what it delivers is the ability to see your book split into scenes. So the centre part of your screen will be the text that you're writing, as you'd see in Word, for example. Yeah. And the left-hand side of the screen, you have all these little tabs just showing the names of your scenes. You don't name them scene one, scene two, scene three. You, you name them, you know, Cormac meets Peter and learns about Carrie or something. Um, Next scene, Peter finds out the truth, you know, whatever. But the the pivotal thing that's happening in the scene is there and you can see them all. You can pick and drag those scenes to any point in the book, which I can tell you is so important when you're at the editing stage and you're trying to find the flow of your story and where the the important things are happening. You can colour code them. This is the really nerdy part coming out. But anyway, you can colour code them. So, for example, if you're using two different points of view. Yep. You can give one point of view blue, one point of view yellow, and then you can see how is this balancing through the story? Am I leaning too hard into one point of view in the first half and not at all in the second? Um, Or, and you can colour code for, or you can label them, you know, I'm at draft one in this scene, but I'm at draft three in this scene, so you can see how you're progressing. So as a tool, it's very useful. If you're target-oriented, you can set yourself daily word targets, you know, weekly word targets, and see your little your little um, measuring thing moving up and forth and changing colour. That's kind of encouraging if you're that way inclined. So that's very useful. Um, I still move the manuscript into Word once I get to the structural edit point. When I'm working with my editors, they send it, I send it to them in Word. They send it back to me with track changes. I, if, if the structural edit requires... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The huge amount of work, then I would probably break that back out into Scrivener again and do it in Scrivener. Yeah. But mostly I stick in Word at that point. I want to touch a little bit, touch on the editing process a little because I can't tell you how many people think that that's a negative. Um, <laughs> so many people that send me manuscripts really? don't want their work touched. Wow. God, I think that's crazy. I really yeah. do think that's crazy. I mean, I have to say I love the editing process. I look forward to it. If you think about what it's like, you're writing a book. It's just you in a little room by yourself for a long time. For some people, years and years. At a certain point, you've read every single word five times and you cannot see it anymore. You just It doesn't matter how good you are. You can't see the work. You need, first of all, a break from it. You need to send it away to somebody else, read or write something completely different, clear your head of that story. Yeah. And then your editor brings to this, you know, years of experience understanding the structure of good work from a, a macro level and right down to the line level. 
and they send it back to you with their considered thoughts and opinions, not with directives. They're not saying you must do this, you must do that. They're asking you the tough questions. You know, they're saying, why is the character in chapter 12 doing this? Because it really seems out of character, given that in chapter two, he did this. Or why, I'm, you know, I find the ending unsatisfying. As a reader, I find it unsatisfying. That tests you. As a writer, you have to either look at it and double down and say, well, actually, I don't agree. This is why in chapter 12 he does that. But I often find when I'm answering questions in that way, I will realize that I might have the answer to the question in my head, but I failed to get it on the page. Mm. And that's my job. Can you tell me this, the lovely story you told me the other day about um, when HarperCollins Australia received your manuscript? About <laughs> <laughs> my, my edit letter? Oh, your God. Edit letter. So yeah. funny. I mean, because I, I had a lovely meeting with, with HarperCollins in Sydney before we signed up, you know, and they were so gorgeous and so welcoming. And I, of course, was terrified as a new writer to say a word for fear I would put them off. So it was a kind of one-sided but lovely meeting. And then um, a few weeks later, I got my first edit editorial letter it was like a very long letter and I read the first two paragraphs and I was blushing because they were like we love your book it's wonderful and it's amazing and this is why and we this is why we're so excited and it's just fantastic we've never written it's just amazing and then 17 pages of everything that's wrong with this (laughs) this is we can't understand why you made this choice and why did you do this and this character is not convincing and you know really like really hardcore and then the last paragraph is and we love it, you know. <laughs> so I've always, I call it the compliment sandwich. And I think that editors feel that they, you know, they have to be gentle with you, but tough at the same time. And it's, you know, it's always like that. Now the, the first paragraphs are a lot shorter, I have to tell you. <laughs> I, got, I get much less of the we love it and much more of the this is what's wrong. But I think that's more that we know each other rather better than that the work's worse. I think that they just know I, I want to get into the work, you know. I love John le Carre as a writer and he was in Sydney a few years back now, maybe 10 years ago, and I was just in the audience with a couple of hundred other people. And, of course, at the end of it, um, somebody asked him about what makes a good story. And for me, I mean, not that I'm a writer, but this has always sat with me. He said there are two stories. There's the cat sat on the mat or there's the cat sat on the dog's mat. Absolutely. The cat sat on the dog's mat is the dramatic story and that's the thing that really gives you... Tension. Tension, drama, and you want to find out what happens. So that was uh, J.R. Lonnie and uh, and I were discussing John le Carre's quote. I, I mean, I love this. You know this, don't yes. you? Um, it is really one of my favourites is, you know, when you're writing a story, it's either the cat set on the mat or... The cat sat on the dog's mat. Yes. I, I mean, that is that should be the beginning of every writing class, shouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it should. And I, actually, um, Natasha Lester used to use a different one when she was teaching and she would say, um, the king died and then the queen died or the king died and then the queen died of grief. It's, ah, lovely. You know, it's perfect. It's the same thing. You're going to the difference of the what questions and the how and why questions. And that's the, the key, the heart of story for me. Is that how you start? Yeah, I, well, I start with, I, I have my own little my own little thing that I write and I stick up on the wall every time. And it's, um, this might sound very pretentious, but I can, I can tell you I got it from a TED talk rather than the original Aristotle. <laughs> but apparently it is from Aristotle. And he says the heart of every story comes down to three things, pity, fear and catharsis. 
And he's thinking about the reader. I think he was writing it about plays at the time. He was talking about plays. But I, I think it goes to the story as well. You know, I'm thinking about the reader all of the time. I want them firstly to feel empathy for the character. Then you put in the stakes. You raise the stakes so they feel fear for the character. And then you resolve it and you give the reader catharsis. So that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah. Talk to me about the seven story um, archetypes. What are they? Mm. Well, Christopher Booker, I think, wrote a book um, where he had spent a prolonged period of time, I think many, many years, reading different stories and operas and plays and even movies. And he felt that in analysing all of those, he could identify seven basic story archetypes, a formula, if you will, that every story fits within or every successful story fits within, in his view. Mm -hmm. um, and he probably wasn't the first, you know, to carry out that sort of analysis. In fact, he definitely wasn't. Many people have done something similar. You know, Joseph Campbell talked about the hero's journey and, and lots of other people have talked about this over time. And I do think it's a fascinating area because there is a reason why certain stories are more satisfying to people than others. But I'm not sure that it's useful for a writer to think in those terms. I, I mean, I certainly don't sit down with the formula and look at, you know, well, this is the story of um, a rags to riches, for example. I'm going to write a rags to riches story and I have to hit these notes at these pages. So what the first one is, well, I've got a list here, overcoming the monster. Mm -hmm. And an example of that is Dracula. Yep. Rags to riches, Cinderella, great expectations. Mm -hmm. The quest, uh, examples are the Odyssey and Lightning Thief. Voyage and Return, mm -hmm. The Hobbit. Alice in Wonderland, Comedy, Bridget Jones' Diary, Tragedy, Madame Bovary, Rebirth, The Secret Garden. Yeah. I think, like, I do think there's truth to the fact that you can probably, in the vast majority of stories, you could find a way to make them fit these. And sometimes you wouldn't even have to push that hard. You know, they yeah. really do fit these archetypes. I'd, I wouldn't argue that there is some truth to it. I don't, I, I mean, think, I, I haven't read all of Christopher's book, but I think he puts forward some theories as to why. Um, and there are, and he talks about some of the different historical theories about why we, why these stories may fall within these archetypes. That it may even come down to, you know, human psyche, why we find certain things more satisfying. But I think as a writer, when you sit down again with your blank page and you're starting off, to think in those terms is counterproductive, because they are in many ways the what questions. You know, what happens next? Sally goes to the garden, and then she went to the shop, and then, you know, da da da. But it doesn't tell you why. You know, it's like the cat sat in the mat. Well, why? You know, he sat in the dog's mat. Oh, okay. Uh, now yeah. suddenly we've got something interesting here. Yeah. So for a writer to think about it in terms of this is a formula of the story that I'm writing is a very, very, very small part of the picture. And I think if, if you put it up front and it's the big picture, then I think it's unhelpful. It's no coincidence that The Ruin... Debut fiction, it was your first book, yeah. I know, and it went to the bestseller list. And I often think, how does that happen? You know, for an unknown author like yourself, um, and I'm trying to verbalise how, what I, what my reaction to the book was. I think for me, one, it was very easy to read. Yeah. It was a page turner. What does that mean? Yeah. And how do you actually achieve that style? And three, the story was complex and engaging yeah. in a way that I could understand. 
Oh, How I'm do really you glad get... you feel that way. Yeah. Um, well, I think about it. To tell you the truth, that is absolutely on my mind. That's part of what I'm aiming for. So every single time I sit down to write a scene, I start with a piece of paper in my notebook and I say, what is the scene about? Who is in it? And what do they want going into it? And what has happened in it? So I... I don't want a single scene in any book that is there for no other reason than to fill up the pages. You know, something has to happen that matters in every in every single chapter. And I don't mean, you know, macro things like, well, somebody has shot somebody, you know, yeah. we've got something dramatic. But it could be that a change of mind or a new point of view or, you know, well, Cormac... Or we discover something discover about something. the character. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, Cormac comes into this chapter feeling this way and he comes out of this chapter with doubts. It can be as simple as that. But you as the reader feel that change happening. So I, I, I'm going, I sit, I ask myself the same questions every time, you know, and some, it's, sometimes it's just very scene setting-y type stuff. Yeah. Which, where, what room are we in and what do we see? What are the pivotal things we see around us that, that create that room? Who else is there? And what does each character want going into the scene? Or what do they know going into the scene? And what do they w- want coming out of it or now know? So what has changed for each of them? not just the character whose point of view I'm writing, because that's where you have um, something organic and real rather than, well, here are my three cardboard cutout characters. Now I'm going to send in my real character who will tell them what's going to happen and then we all move forward and there's a simple exchange of information. That doesn't feel real. I I want you to feel wrapped up in it, so it has to feel real. So so I'm asking myself those questions every single time. So that's, that's... the first thing and then when it comes back down before I send it to my editors I'm looking at it for pace and I'm looking at it for that sort of stuff and I'm thinking you know does each chapter move quickly does it matter is there a balance across the whole book you know and a lot of that is instinctive it comes from reading and reading and reading and reading Mm. and reading that's why writers always say if you want to write fiction you have to read Mm. because if you think about it Cheryl like if you write a hundred thousand word book just think how many words you could have chosen. Yeah. Think how many choices you have to make. It's millions and millions of choices. If you try to make every choice consciously, you couldn't. It's just physically impossible to do that. So most of these are coming from you know, an instinctive subconscious decision that you are making. And those decisions are informed by 20, 30, 40 years of reading other people's work. Yeah. So that's why you must read in order to write. And it all feeds in to create the book. Dervla, I really do. I really think you're magnificent in terms of writing. How you came to it, it was your second career yeah. and you nailed it at book one. Oh, my God. Thank what are the three things that you've done that you think have carved your success? Like, if you're going to give a writer three tips, what mm. are they going to be? Oh, God. They're going to sound so boring and I apologise in advance. But, you know, you've but maybe they are. Maybe it, it's it's a job that you have to apply yourself to. Well, it's the first one is read. because, read, And yeah. I know I've said that already and I know everybody says it and probably everybody hearing it rolls their eyes and goes, oh, that old chestnut. But, but it is. The fundamental building block of writing mm. is to read. Mm. So read things you love. Read things that excite you and make you happy. Don't read to be worthy. Read because you love it because that's the thing you have to feed. Yeah. The second thing, write as much as you can. I, I know people say write every day. I don't think that's practical for everybody, unfortunately. But at the same time, don't lie to yourself. You know, sometimes you have to carve out the time. Make yourself do that because you you love it. Give it that time and respect and write as much as you can, particularly in the beginning to build up the skill. You need to write as much as you can. 
And my last one is drink tea, not wine. <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, you know, that's a dangerous habit to fall into. But you need some little treats. So I'd say go for the tea rather than the wine if you oh, can. Or the coffee, maybe. Yeah, or the coffee. Coffee's good too. <laughs> Dervla McTiernan, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Better Reading on Writing, please leave an iTunes review. Also, visit our site, betterreading.com, for podcast notes and join the Better Reading community on Facebook for more books, author chats and great community discussions. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.